0: Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Carolina and Clara, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on Neuro-inspired
1: AI, and to help us with this topic, we're joined by Clementine Dominic clementine is a phd student at the gatsby computational neuroscience unit in the university college london working with professor andrew sachs and professor caswell Barry. Uh, welcome to the podcast clementine hi thank you for having me here um, it's i'm really honored to be here and looking forward to great discussions yeah um I'm excited that you're here. I wanted to ask you first, what, what's your PhD research topic about and what made motivated you to uh, research this topic? So broadly, my PhD is at the intersection between machine
2: learning and neuroscience. I'm interested in studying the mechanisms of intelligence uh, in both the brain and artificial intelligence. And I believe that understanding better as uh, the brain or some mechanisms in the brain would help us uh, create better artificial intelligence. Specifically, I focus on the replay mechanism. The replay mechanism in the brain has been originally discovered in the hippocampus. And this mechanism is, so it's the idea that uh, during a rest period, the same sequence of neurons will be repeated in the same sequence. And this phenomena uh, has been linked to some properties such as consolidation of memories, but also planning. And maybe there's some hypothesis that it could be also important for compositionality. And therefore I take inspiration from this mechanism and try to apply it as other people have done before in machine learning and try to ask the question, uh, what should we replay, be able to uh, obtain a
1: flexible learning in Mm -hmm. general. That sounds really cool. So before we dive into this topic on neuro-inspired AI, do you want to explain a little bit what consists of understanding the dynamics of artificial neural networks and what they are?
2: Yeah, in in general, in artificial intelligence, uh, we have been able to create quite good algorithms so far. However, we don't fully understand how they work and how they learn, and this is very similar for the brain. And therefore, something that I'm particularly interested in is understanding what they learn and how they learn. So to do that, we have to go back towards very simple settings. I.e., for example, in the paper I worked on, linear networks, which are probably the simplest types of networks. Mm-hmm. And having access to these very simple networks, we can look and try and understand what is the dynamic of learning. And hopefully some of the things that we discover in those very simple networks scale to larger networks. And so yeah, this is a field of interpretability in general. Mm -hmm. And so we're really trying to understand what and how we learn and those algorithms work. Because it's kind of a black box when Mm -hmm. you think about it. We have an algorithm, uh, it learns some things, but sometimes it picks up some patterns. Is it able to exactly extract the structure? how is it able to perform so well Mm -hmm. and i think this is the type of understanding i'm looking for Mm -hmm. Uh, and people have different levels of wanting to understand i think you even in neuroscience right you can look at things at the molecular level you can look at things at the cellular level system level cognitive level and i think coming from physics the one that i'm most attracted to is really like almost the lowest one trying to really understand in those intelligent, intelligent having access to the equations what is it and how do you learn exactly um, without having just a phenomenological understanding of what the artificial intelligence is doing
1: um that's really cool i'm glad you brought up your physics background so clementine did physics in manchester and i'm sure that gives you a really interesting perspective on um artificial neural networks yeah
2: definitely i think uh, there's this joke that uh, physicists always oversimplify a problem to be able to simplify it so for example usually everything is a sphere in Mm -hmm. physics and i think it's kind of similar and it speaks to the type of things I'm doing at the moment really take the simplest case possible to be able to have an exact understanding of what it's doing and how it's doing it, and then see if you can scale up. This background has really given me, I think this type of approach, but also the analytical uh, skills to be able to look into uh, artificial intelligence and neuroscience. I think it's not as common approach to neuroscience, but one that I personally really feel could make a difference.
0: Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the idea of understanding the mechanisms of learning, um, which is something I also kind of research, but from a purely experimental Mm -hmm. uh, background. But I wanted to ask if, are you sort of more interested in understanding how machine learning works based on like the existing machine learning algorithms, or, understanding how learning works in the brains of organisms and implementing that into machine learning to improve it or both.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would say probably both. Um I think I'm very again I think as, as a physicist I'm very attracted by those big ideas of what is intelligence, what is learning and I consider that we are one kind of learning agents as humans, but there's also many other types of intelligence around and biological ones as well as artificial ones. And I'm fundamentally just interested in understanding what are those mechanisms. And I hope that working at the intersection will allow us to move forward in both fields. And I think it's this idea that people have been asking for generation that really motivates me. But I felt in physics, uh, it was much harder to have an access to the experimental side so if you do a theory for example you're going to develop a theory but it's going to take I don't know how many years to be able to test it and I think what is very exciting about neuroscience right now is that it's a field that techniques to record from the brain are getting better and better so I have more and more access so this is really exciting so you arrive in the field that is basically booming and you have no ground theory that is really set in stone. And as a scientist, I find that super exciting. And artificial intelligence at the same time is also booming uh, at the moment. So it just feels like a super exciting field to be in for both artificial intelligence
0: and neuroscience. Yeah, it's definitely like a dual effect because you're improving your understanding, but also utilizing it to create intelligence, which is super cool. But I guess something related to the field from people like me who aren't really directly in the field, is like how similar is artificial intelligence and what we know about the neural mechanisms of human intelligence?
2: Okay, so I I would say very different. At its origin, artificial intelligence and neural networks were inspired by the brain. This is the type of interaction we thought could be interesting. However, it feels like the two fields have also kind of moved forward in two different paths and now they are very different but however always kind of inspired by one another so within artificial intelligence you will find a lot of uh, mechanism that we see in the brain kind of implemented so for example the idea of replay that i'm looking at but also the idea of attention the idea of pruning you also see it i think uh, in the brain development as well as in artificial intelligence so i think those two fields have grown together are very different kinds that will probably lead to very different kinds of intelligence at the end. But are always kind of speaking to each other by being inspired from mechanism from the brain to create artificial intelligence, but also from our understanding uh, of artificial intelligence or using it, we're able to model some of the things we see in the brain mm-hmm. in in general. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. From my understanding uh, with machine learning, it comes with it a lot of problems that we don't really encounter in human brains, things such as like catastrophic mm-hmm. forgetting, Uh, do you wanna tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I think we also see problems by the way in the brain that we don't see in artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence is better than us at some things that we are not, but we're also much better at other things that they are not. So this is a very interesting, I think, interaction in between those two types of intelligence. But one of the one I'm very interested in is the fact that humans are able to do very flexible types of learning. So we are able to move in between tasks, for example, very easily. You learn about one and then you can do another without forgetting about the first one. And you can even use sometimes what you learn from the first one to do better in the second task. However, uh, artificial intelligence are not able to do this very flexibly. So they suffer what you just mentioned, uh, catastrophic forgetting. So it means that after being trained on the first task and trained on the second task, they completely forget about the first one, which is not very practical, right? You want your artificial intelligence to not totally forget. And therefore, I believe that maybe looking at some of the mechanisms that we see in the brain, because we are able to to do those things, we could try and change or the algorithms we have for artificial intelligence to be able to to have this flexible learning. And there's a lot of other approaches that people have as well, but this is the one I'm personally interested in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you think we could overcome that problem of catastrophic
2: forgetting or if it's possible? I think it's possible. I think maybe by looking by prioritize replay uh, and Using replay within your rest period, we are able to flexibly reshuffle the knowledge you have without forgetting the previous one. And this is one of the ways I think we could do it in artificial intelligence as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, choosing what you are replaying. For example, you could decide to have interleaved replay. So if you have task A, task B, during learning task B, you interleave some of the information from task A to be able to not forget about it. So Mm -hmm. that's one way you could prioritize replay to be able to avoid catastrophic forgetting uh, as much. And there's many other possibilities. You could also decide, for example, to replay based on uncertainty. So Mm -hmm. if you're an agent navigating in the world, some things have more information than others. That's something that is very uncertain, doesn't have a lot of information for you because you don't want to encode that as something that you want to keep. Something that is very common has much more information and you want to probably replay that as something that is quite strong. But at the same time, you also have this idea that something that is surprising and new has a lot of information if mm-hmm. it's, it becomes con- constant in your environment. Mm-hmm. So that's another way you could prioritize replay. You could also prioritize replay, for example, in the setting I was looking at based on the correlation between your two tasks. So if your two tasks share some structures, you may want to replay replay that structure for example because you know that this is a structure that is going to be useful for you
1: do you do this replay manually like do you pick the specific parts that are relevant do you do it randomly what how do you do it so yeah in artificial intelligence we necessarily have to choose what we
2: replay so it's manual um but the idea is that looking at the equations, we can kind of figure out what is the best way of what is the best thing to replay and when it is the best thing to to replay and you decide in your algorithms. But the idea is that hopefully by looking at those artificial intelligence, we could come up with theories uh, of how a replay could be prioritized in the brain because this is something we also believe it would be impossible for you to replay every single experience you have during your day. Yeah. Uh, it would be too computationally heavy your brain would um, yeah set on fire <laughs> <laughs> and so you, we have to think how does the brain pick the relevant experiences and to to be learned and to be replayed and by looking at an in artificial intelligence maybe we can come up with some theories that people can look in the brain and see if the things that we predict should be more replayed are actually more replayed for example, okay. which is something we're having planning to do actually in the project uh, oh, okay. that we're doing on um, looking at replay on the lateral stratum, which is, I think, the first evidence for a replay of procedural memory. So this is very exciting as well. And we haven't looked at the prioritization replay. We know we see replay, we see it in a compositional manner, which is super interesting. Mm. And that kind of opens the door to be able to ask so within this uh, sequence uh, that is composed of multiple bits, which part is most, most replayed and in which order, and you have this compositionality ideas uh, are able to create new types of sequences from the sequences you've already learned.
0: Um, I know that in the brain, replay has been related to like specific types of os- oscillatory activity that is linked to like, thalamocortical sort of bursting activity that occurs during sleep. Um, can you like model this in artificial networks to induce a kind of biological random type of replay? Or is that not possible? Or has not has it not been done yet?
2: Yes, I think. So people do this and have done this. I think uh, when people use artificial intelligence, they can use it in different ways. I really use it as creating or understanding a neural network some other people use artificial intelligence as a model of the brain and within those models they will incorporate those those theta reasons for example to be more biologically plausible so my research is not exactly in the biologically plausible direction but a lot of people are working on that and because basically artificial intelligence the most A basic type of neural network is not biologically plausible, even from the fact that it uses backpropagation, which is not a biologically plausible rule, because backpropagation is basically you have inputs, you uh, run through your neural network output, and you compare with the errors, and you backpropagate the information through the nodes. Mm -hmm. However, there's no proof that in the brain you could send back the information for the network weights and uh, basically the signals to adjust themselves Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of work as well in this direction just making artificial artificial intelligence biologically plausible Um, but as i said it's not exactly where my research is focused on but i still believe that there are interesting parallels to be made uh, in between what i see in those very simple artificial neural networks and the brain even though not everything is biologically plausible in the types of network i'm looking at
1: um, you mentioned weights mm-hmm. so is that a way to be able to pick what is important for replay and stuff what, what are weights so
2: basically you have to imagine a artificial uh, neural network as a set of neurons and the connection between the neurons will be your weights you can decide to have a uh, feed-forward connection. So you just go straight through or recurrent neural uh, connections. Mm-hmm. And those weights basically encode the information between the neurons. So it's, as I said, artificial intelligence were originally inspired by the brain, where the neurons were the nodes and the weights were the synapses. Mm-hmm. And as you learn, the synapses change their weights to accommodate for what you're learning, which is also something we see in the brain. Like plasticity. Uh, it's, can be for kind of as plasticity. Okay. And so people try to incorporate learning rules that are uh, arti- uh, biologically plausible. Mm-hmm. So that, for example, only use localized information in between the two neurons. Mm-hmm. And so there are some workers where trying to incorporate LCP or biologically plausible uh, learning rules within artificial neural networks.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned how your research is kind of at the verge of theoretical and empirical and how there's like a theoretical empirical loop. Could you... Explain about how specifically your research has used this approach.
2: I think it's a very hard thing to do, first of all. So I don't claim like I've done it successfully. Um, But (laughs) the way I... So I, I work on multiple different projects. One of them is totally on the theoretical side, looking at deep linear networks and their dynamics. Another one was working with experimental data, uh, with some experimentalists at the SWC uh, in the group of Marcus Stephanson-Jones looking at replaying the dosolite striatum, And so these are on the two ends of the spectrum. And I think from that, first of all, I've learned what kind of data we have access, what type of prediction can we make, and what are we able to look at in the brain. And on the other side, I've been working on something extremely theoretical that allowed me to get some Intuition into theory, and I try to kind of bridge those two things into a third project where I'm building a framework that allows you to compare experimental data with your models. And from those two experiences, I've learned different things that I think like put me in a good place where this tool hopefully, if, as people start to use it, uh, which, yeah, um, we will be able to make meaningful comparison and create a good interaction between experimental and theory. Because at the moment, it's very hard. We have a lot of experimental data, we have a lot of models, and it's hard to know what are the key things uh, to extract from both. And I think by putting them in the same place and comparing them very uh, in a standardized manner. And I'm not the one to say uh, what is the good evidence. I think the field should uh, use this tool and kind of converge, hopefully, to an understanding of what are the important evidence that we want to reproduce uh, in both the model and experiments. We will be able to create, hopefully, a better synergy between theory and experiments. And hopefully, from looking at the shortcomings of the models, create new models and also, from the prediction of the models, create new experiments, and vice versa. So yeah, my aim was really f- trying to create this tool that would help a better loop in between experiment and theory, because I think it's a very hard thing to do.
1: Is this the neural playground? Yeah, it's thing. neural
2: playground. Is it out yet? Yes. Is it open source? It's, everything is open source because that's yeah. also something I strongly. Uh, yeah advocating for in Mm -hmm. general and it's a collaborating framework so anyone who wants to participate by either adding a data set or uh, adding a model or adding a metric for comparison Mm -hmm. uh the model predictions with the experiments i encourage anyone to to do it but we it's a very much alpha version Mm, okay and so hopefully by September we will have all of the components that allow people to really use it efficiently almost there uh-huh. uh, but it's out there okay <laughs>
1: cool. yeah so we'll keep an eye out
0: for the neural playground yeah that's super cool and we did a previous episode with a guest Shubham where we were actually speaking about kind of a similar idea like he proposed a platform where people collated their experimental data for like neural circuits, and they could be compared and so that you could like have a more composite framework of how different neural circuits function differently. So that's pretty similar to what you've achieved. (laughs) So super cool to hear that that's something that is beginning to exist
2: yeah there's other initiatives like that like uh, rat in a box or NeuroNav, okay. are other they take a slightly different approach NeuroNav is much more in the rl setting for now i believe uh, and rat in a box was mostly already focused uh, for naturalistic behaviors but i think there's really a push in the field for like standardization of the way we we compare things in between models and experiments So i think kind of encourage a good this loop in between experiments and theory. So this is very exciting. And there's also a push for open source,
1: which I think is very important. Very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, we have so much data nowadays, it's more to do. What do we do with the data? How do we analyze it? And to have a standardized model is so important. Like data is massive, takes up so much storage and it's difficult to sort through. So yeah, it's really cool that we're having these more like streamlined, um, tools available. So, you have this paper on uh, exact learning dynamics of deep linear networks with prior knowledge. Do you want to tell us a bit about prior knowledge and how it's important for the dynamics of linear networks? Yeah, of course. So, in Linear networks by knowledge can
2: be thought as the initialization. And the initialization can be either chosen with small random weights or large random weights, for example. But it can also be built from a previous task. And this knowledge will impact the dynamics of learning in linear networks and other networks. There's a lot of work in many other artificial intelligence to decide what is a good initialization because your endpoint might be different. And so what we looked at in this setting is uh, how does the initialization or the prior knowledge influence how you're learning? And I guess maybe to do a very short parallel with the brain or the intuition we have for neuroscience is that, let's say you have a baby and an adult learning about different types of birds, and you ask them, what is a chicken? The baby with total naive knowledge will embed the concept of a chicken in and just learn it in a certain way. However, you expect the adult to kind of extract the features of the chicken as the features of a bird and integrate it into a rich representation of birds. And therefore, the way we'll be learning will be probably faster and also more flexible. Afterwards, the adult should be able to generalize well their knowledge of birds in general. If I ask what is another bird, it will, again, do this loop. Uh, recognize the different features and this is kind of what we're looking at in in those linear networks as well so we know for example that if we start from small random weights the network will learn a rich representation so a representation that kind of has extract the structure and from which you can generalize from easily however we've been also able to show that actually This rich representation is not only built from this type of initialization. If you initialize your network in a balanced weight state, which, yeah, probably sounds uh, very specific. And it's just the idea that the weights of your first layer, your weight of of your first layer and your second layer are balanced, or you can think about the same, then you can access this rich representation. So this is some of the ideas we've been able to extract understanding when the network is able to generalize very easily and when not, and in which setting. Uh, and through the equations, we've been able to do that. We also looked at other like settings and how the initialization was modifying the behavior. So for example, in the continual learning setting, so which is, continual learning setting is the set the setting we just talked about before, which is learning a first task and then learning a second one. Are you able to transfer the knowledge of your first task in your second task so it's learning two things uh, in a row basically so we looked at uh understanding how and like the initialization may change that and yeah other things mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah reversal learning as well we looked at so what's reversal learning uh, this is also interesting um reversal learning is the idea that if you in your first task you learn something and then you learn exactly the opposite oh, and okay. it's been shown in animals i believe as well that Animal that forage or like get super expert in one thing if you ask them to do the opposite they will kind of get stuck for mm-hmm. a very long time and then eventually they will learn the mm-hmm. new task and we see this in linear networks as well so is this effect this time called catastrophic slowing oh, okay. we're a bit like <laughs> always over the top yeah i love it's how always, dramatic the machine yeah, learning words really are, <laughs> are dramatic so it's catastrophic slowing and so thanks to the derivation we've done by explaining the um, dynamics of learning, we've been able to find some theoretical grounds of why we see this in those types of networks. And the idea is that basically the network gets stuck in a saddle point and theoretically could never escape it, actually. Oh, okay. So the solution points toward the idea that you get stuck forever. However, any amount of noise allow you to escape this saddle point. And you end up learning. But the reason why it gets stuck for so long is because you're supposed to never escape. And you kind of see this effect, as I said, in rodents as well. So,
1: That's so interesting. So would you also potentially like need uncertainties? How are they useful? So I think,
2: I don't know if it's uncertainty in the settings, really like the numerical noise, actually, for linear networks that really allow you to How can you, you learn.
1: have noise in a neural network? Uh, it's at the
2: computer level. You know okay. how your computer is not exactly uh, exact. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that, no. Um, yeah, you have some information up to a decimal point, right? Okay. Um, you And therefore, there's some noise in the process okay. uh, of running. And theoretically, you should stay stuck forever. So there's always a difference between analytical solution and numerical solution. Mm-hmm. So when you do numerics, which is algorithms and computers, etc., you will have some amount of error where analytical solution gives you the exact theoretical setting in which it should happen. Mm-hmm.
0: This is actually so interesting because in our app ep- we did an episode about noise in the brain, and in that episode, one of the benefits of having noise, which biologically means spontaneous neural activity, was that it could potentially like boost creativity by kind of like statistically swaying the system in s- certain seemingly random directions, and I guess the capacity to be creative is kind of part of potentially part of human intelligence. And to be innovative, to be creative and therefore innovative. And also something I've been meaning to ask for a while now, which you may or may not be able to comment on, is something we've spoken quite a lot about on Neuroverse is like different types of intelligence. So for example, not only animals but also in plants and we did an episode on mycelial networks, so like fungal networks and how they compare to the brain and all these different types of intelligence which you also mentioned earlier which i guess is always inevitably related to the function of the system and therefore evolutionary pressures um but I guess machine learning is kind of focused on human intelligence because, like, human intelligence is seen as being superior. But can we also look at different other forms of intelligence and extract from that and apply that to machine intelligence? Or has that been done?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably been done. And I would even say machine learning is becoming its own field and mm. partly. Some people now just develop algorithm without even looking at the brain anymore and without having it as a reference anymore. It's really developing by itself, by changing the algorithms. And I wouldn't be surprised if there some work kind of adding some concept that they've seen in other types of intelligence um, in general.
0: Also, I wanted to comment on like what the metaphor you used earlier about comparing babies and adults. I found that really interesting because my first instinct as you were describing that was that for babies, they would actually learn more quickly in a way because they don't have as much of a internal model that they have to integrate things into so then they're more like a sponge so they'll just take in the information but for adults it's like it's more complex because you have to find a place to fit it in and make all the connections with your existing knowledge but then it makes sense that that would then help you to be able to generalize so like have Mm -hmm. these further functions following on from it but it also seems like for for babies that they would be able to learn faster
2: yeah, I see what you mean. But generally, I think also in the brain, when the weights or the synapses are potentiated or high, you tend to learn faster. And I think that's true in artificial intelligence as well. But sometimes it can be not useful. Um, so the opposite of the generalization setting or rich setting is the lazy setting. So artificial intelligence can be able to learn something without really understanding it. For example, if you take an exam and you just learn by heart the content for that exam, you're going to perform 100%. However, if we ask you to be able to do another exam, you will do very poorly. And that's the lazy regime. And if you actually understand the content and extract information and are able to create a rich representation, which may take you more time, you will be able to use that knowledge for further exams but both of them perform perfectly but you will see the difference in the way they generalize and how fast they generalize um but yeah in babies do they really learn faster it seems in the development of babies they take a long time to
1: learn things i think it depends whether you mean semantics or you know i think semantics babies learn from a really young age to associate like mom with comfort and mm-hmm. that kind of thing so whether or not they can string words together in a sentence that's grammatically correct that's a different yeah, question no, but different. Uh, absorbing information yes and i guess is then having that as a reference point to whatever that information is um i wanted to point out that so you mentioned that one form of prior knowledge in deep networks is the initial network states and for me for some reason this reminds me of Primary amino acid sequences, which encode the information to then that leads onto the folding of the protein and have the tertiary shape and dynamics. And this reminds me of a topic that we talk a lot about in Neuroverse, which is structure function relationships. And do you think that there is this kind of dynamic with neural networks in terms of structure function relationships? Oh, definitely. Okay. So
2: right now, what I was looking at is the initialization of your wig, but obviously the architecture of your neural network will change what it learns and how it learns.
1: What uh, do you mean by architecture?
2: So by architecture, so the setting I was looking at is a two-layer linear network and it's feed forward. So you just have two layers of nodes and everybody's connected to everyone and you push the information forward. You can have many different other types of connections that you decide. You can have recurrent connections. And this kind of includes inductive bias into what it learns and how it learns Mm -hmm. uh, from the structure. I think this is what you mean, right? Like, not only you make the decision of how to initialize it, but you make the decision of how it's connected. Uh Um, And that definitely influences what it learns. So yeah, I would say there's three levels in which you make decisions for artificial intelligence. There's the initialization, the learning rule, how you learn, and the architecture of your network. And all of these things create the zoo of neural networks. And this these works on geometric deep learning lately that have been kind of giving a unifying view of why we have so many different neural networks with different architectures and different learning rules, etc. And the view is that actually each neural network is best suited for a certain type of data and a certain type of invariances within the data. Mm -hmm. So, for example, convolutional neural networks, which are very famous for um, looking at images, basically allow you to incorporate translation invariance, which is invariance to translation, which is information that you already have in an image. And the reason why they work well with images is because images have this translation invariance and convolutional neural network, the operation that you do, kind of respect that. So that's one type of artificial intelligence uh, neural network. Then you can also look at graph neural networks. And these types of networks have their own types of invariance, which is permutation invariance, and therefore will be suited to another types of data that has also this type of invariance. So there's so many different architectures, and I find it really fascinating that they were able to kind of show this relationship between the data and the architecture or what it has to learn in the architecture, actually
1: that kind of reminds me of an enzyme and like you, yeah. n- you need to have a really specific structure that fits a specific substrate in this case it's the data versus the architecture
2: yeah no i so I, this was not in the things i sent you but i'm going no, to do like that geometric deep learning types of ideas and actually i did this project in rome which was really fun uh looking at how can you predict binding uh, between antibody and antigen and so you represent the molecules as graph so it is a very natural way to represent this type of data. Mm-hmm. So each of the nodes is the molecules, and then you can run updates on the graphs to be able to predict how they are gonna bind. So I really like that project because I felt it was the first time I had a very concrete impact or working on a very concrete problem. And because otherwise, most of my work is quite theoretical.
0: I have one last question, and it's related to this structure function stuff, which I obviously find so interesting and cool. So it's also related to babies, again, it made me think about complexity. So I was wondering, does the complexity of the architecture influence the capacity for intelligence? Like, do more nodes in a machine mean that it's more intelligent? Or what is the key thing that sort of... Of improves the intelligence is it the plasticity like the ability to change or is it the number of nodes or the number of connections or yeah it's yeah. a really good question and i think it's a very hot debate and i think it's hard
2: to say exactly now but i think this speaks a lot to the technology of chat gpt for example because originally i think people thought that more complex algorithms or updates would be the most important but turns out chat gpt they have relatively simple algorithm but they scaled the number of nodes to very very large number and they scaled the data to a very very large number and we've seen incredible improvements and if you would have asked this to people maybe seven years back most of them would have not believed that just by increasing the number of nodes and increasing the number of data you would do so well so i think we are not understanding yet exactly what is crucial in the uh, intelligence mechanism chat gpt points towards and transformers in general points towards the answer that scaling up things is really important so a lot of data is crucial but i personally still want to believe <laughs> that there are other very fundamental mechanisms so maybe the learning rule that you decide or the type of architecture that is really crucial and i personally don't think we've solved it yet even though chat gpt is quite amazing i think it again speaks for the fact that we have been able to engineer something that is intelligent. I don't think we fully understand how and what it learns. Um, so really understand the dynamics, what type of representation does it extract, how does it do flexible learning, all of these things. So I think there's still a lot of work for me in the future, hopefully. <laughs> but it is a really exciting tool at the moment, and I'm really looking forward to see where this leads us in general and. I hope as well that we're going to create other types of has successful intelligence as well.
1: Yeah, sounds great. I'm really excited to, yeah. for the future and to see what you do. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> thank you for joining us, Clementine. It's been a pleasure to have thank you on. Thank you for on. hosting me. It was a
2: very fun chat to have with you guys.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it on your social media. Uh, (laughs) Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram and check out our website for resources and links. And I'll put uh, Clementine's paper and the Neural Playground that you can check out. Thanks for listening. Thank you.